race. First of all, it's the bridge racially. In Acts 1 to 7, it's uh, pure Palestinian Jews to whom the gospel is preached. In Acts 8, uh, 13 to 28, it's Gentiles. And Acts 8 to 12 serves as the bridge. Secondly, it's a geographical bridge. And third, it's a uh, what I call an instrumental bridge. Peter looms large in the first part of Acts. Paul looms large in the last part, latter part of Acts. Now, the critical section, the critical event in Acts 8 to 12, and it covers about um, 11 years, is the conversion of Cornelius. I cannot impress on you how important this incident is that we read. As a matter of fact, it's so important that part of chapter 9 is devoted to it, all of chapter 10, 48 verses is devoted to it, and 17 verses of Acts chapter 11. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you know any other incident in all the book of Acts to which there's devoted almost two chapters? I don't. Paul's conversion is told in three places, but it doesn't take up as much space. Matter of fact, uh, right apart from the crucifixion of Jesus, I don't remember any other incident in all the New Testament to which is devoted almost two whole chapters. Now, why does the writer of Luke, under the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit, why does the writer of Luke devote two old chapters, almost two old chapters, part of nine, all of ten, and part of eleven, to the story of the conversion of this man Cornelius? Because it is the critical, one of the critical turning points in the history of the church. And it demonstrates two great truths that God is going to cleanse and save Gentiles by faith alone in Christ apart from circumcision. Do you recall the first great issue that came up in the early church found in Acts chapter 15? Paul had been out the first missionary journey and preached the gospel. At the end of chapter 14, when he made his report back to the church at Antioch, he told how God, and to quote, had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, when he made that report to the church at Antioch, and in it were many, many uh, Orthodox Jewish Christians, they said, except, no, certain men came up from the church of Jerusalem and said, except these Gentiles be circumcised, they cannot be justified, they cannot be saved. Their first great issue in the church was Essentially, how is a man saved or justified? Is he saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ, or must he also be circumcised? Obviously, a Jew was already circumcised, so all he needed to do was to receive Jesus Christ as Savior. But what about a Gentile? Could a Gentile be a member of the family of God without undergoing the covenant sign of Israel? That sign that God gave to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 17, the sign of circumcision. Must the Gentile be circumcised as well as trusting Jesus Christ? Now, the first great ecumenical council in Acts 15 was convened over that very issue. But five chapters before this, in the case of Cornelius, that issue was already settled. God saved a pure Gentile, Cornelius, apart from circumcision, apart from any of the Jewish rites, 
He saved them by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Now, how did the seven Jews and Peter know that God had received and accepted Cornelius? Well, he knew it two ways. First of all, before he went there, God gave him a vision. Do you remember that vision? You don't remember that? What was it? The sheep came down from heaven, and in that sheep were animals that were clean animals, which Jews ate, and unclean animals like a catfish, for example, which Jews did not eat. Un and, and Peter was horrified by the mixture of these two, by the mixture by the mixture of clean animals and unclean animals. And when God explained it, Peter knew what he meant was that the clean animals represented Jews and the unclean animals represented Gentiles. And Peter was so thick-headed that God had to give him that vision three times. God gave a vision to Cornelius, but he only had to give him that vision one time. Here was an unsaved Gentile. His mind wasn't blocked by prejudices. He gave him a vision one time, and in that vision, it was a vision of man coming to him and telling him the gospel. And God said, send, him, send from Caesarea up in the north, <clears throat> send your messengers down to Joppa to get this man, Cornelia, uh, Peter, and bring him on back to Caesarea, because he will tell you and your household words by which you must be saved. And Cornelius immediately responded, and sent those messengers. You remember that story. Now, while the messengers are traveling from Cornelius at Caesarea down south to Joppa, the modern Joppa, the seaport, the modern Joppa seaport, while they're traveling down there, uh, God gave to Peter also a vision. And you remember, Peter was up on the top of his house. It was noontime. He was hungry. It was time to go down to McDonald's, and he was hungry, didn't have anything to eat. And uh, so, uh, just about that time, <clears throat> Peter was, God put Peter in a trance. Now, when he's in a trance, it means that his, that his mental powers are, are active, but he's immobilized. When he's in a trance, it means that his, uh, his powers are active. He can think and see, but he just can't move. He's immobilized. Now, if he puts him in a dream, why... Um, that means that his mental powers are shifted elsewhere as well as his body. I look out sometimes and I see some in, in a trance. <laughs> there, I know their powers are active, they're listening, but they're immobilized. I see some who are in a dream. And then I see some who are just sleeping altogether. <laughs> Whatever that is. But Peter was in a trance, and in that trance, down came a sheep. He was on top of the house. He was hungry. Down came a sheep, held in all fours. And on that sheep, clean animals, unclean animals. God said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter says, no, Lord, absolutely. I'm a Jew. I wouldn't eat mixed food, clean and unclean. And God said, what I've cleansed, don't you call unclean. And he took it up. Then he came down a second time. Peter was thick-headed. He was thick-headed. Came down a second time. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Not so, Lord. Not so, Lord. Which is a contradiction in terms, you know. Not so, Lord. I've never eaten that sort of thing. Came down a third. God said, what I've cleansed, don't you call and clean. Peter, third time. Peter, rise, kill and eat. No, said Peter, 
I'm horrified by the mixture of clean and unclean animals. No, I can't. God said, what I've cleansed, don't you call unclean. When that third vision was completed, about that time, knock at the door downstairs, the messengers from Cornelius had arrived, and God said to Peter, go down there and go with them. So Peter left, along with his, very wisely, he took seven Orthodox Jewish Christians as witnesses. They went up to Cornelius, we're told, and they were invited in and eventually ate, which is something an Orthodox Jew absolutely would not do. An Orthodox Jew absolutely would not eat. He was clean. The Gentile was unclean. And absolutely an Orthodox Jew would not eat with a Gentile. But Peter had that vision, you see. God prepared him. So Peter went on in and preached the gospel and ate with Cornelius in the home of Cornelius, which was really taboo for an Orthodox, uh, for an Orthodox Jew to do that. Now, later on, when Peter got back to Jerusalem, he was called on the carpet by the Jerusalem church, supposed to Orthodox Jews for doing that thing. And Peter said, my goodness, I preached. They received the Holy Spirit. They spoke in tongues, which authenticated to us that God had saved them. Now, if God had received them, how could I reject them? If God had received them, how could I refuse to baptize them and accept them? I couldn't, of course, obviously. So Peter went on down to the house of Cornelius and preached the gospel and ate. And, and God taught the church two great truths. Now, are you listening? I'm going to give this at the end if we get to the end. God taught Peter two great basic truths. The first truth is that God is saving Gentiles in exactly the same way that he saves Jews. God is saving Gentiles in exactly the same way that he's saving Jews. And that is through simple faith in Jesus Christ. The second lesson that Peter learned is the equality of Jews and Gentiles in the body of Christ. God saves Gentiles, brings them into the body of Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the hour of conversion, and places no difference between Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ. They are equal before God. They're equal before God as sinners, and they're equal before God as saints. And the early church had to learn that, and my friend, the 20th century church in the last 30 or 40 years has also needed to learn that lesson. God is saving men by faith in Christ alone, and all believers are equal in the body of Christ. And, the, and, and Peter reflects on that if you'll take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 15. Peter later on reflects on his experience at the Council of Jerusalem. Acts chapter 15. This takes place uh, several years later. Acts chapter 15. And uh, Acts chapter 15, verse 1 says, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren. That is, certain Christian men. They were Jewish believers came down from Judea and taught the brethren and said, except you Gentiles be what? After the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Except you be 
circumcised, you cannot be saved. Now, instead of using the word circumcised today, what word would be used today that people say you have to be in order to be saved? Baptized, see, today. Except you be circumcised, you cannot be saved. That was the first great issue. You Gentiles, in order must be saved, you've got to go through two doors. We only have to go through one, we Jews. We were already circumcised when we were eight days old. So the only door we have to go through is the door of faith, and when we go through that door, then we are saved. But you're not circumcised. So you've got to go through the door of circumcision and also through the door of faith. Now, that was the subject of the first great ecumenical conference in Acts chapter 15. And, and uh, four or five men got up and made speeches. Peter made a speech. Look at verse 7. Here's Peter's speech, and in that speech he reflects back to experience, his experience at, uh, with Cornelius. One there had been much uh, disputing. Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you all know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles, Cornelius, that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. How did Peter know that God had given to these Gentiles the Holy Ghost? They spoke in tongues. That authenticated it. God gave them the Holy Ghost. They spoke in tongues. Verse 9, And he put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts, what are the last two words? By faith. They were saved by faith alone. See, Peter learned his lesson well. Now, would you look up here? Peter learned it well, but you know what happened? Shortly after this conference at Jerusalem, down at Jerusalem, Peter went on north to Antioch once again, and uh, the church at Antioch had within it Jews and Gentiles. And Peter ate with Gentiles and had no trouble eating with Gentiles. God had taught him that at the, at, at the home of Cornelius. And God had taught him that at the Council of Jerusalem. At the Council of Jerusalem, fearlessly got up and made this speech. No difference. We're different. We're all equal in the body of Christ. Therefore, we can eat together. So when Paul was, when Peter was up at Antioch, he ate with Gentiles, which was unthinkable for a Jew. He ate with Gentiles. You remember what happened in Galatians chapter 2? Up from Jerusalem came some Jewish brethren whom Peter held in high regard. You know prejudices run deep. And they came up to Antioch and they spotted. They were Jewish Christians, but they still held their uh, prejudices about not eating with a man who was not circumcised. It's hard for us to understand that in the 20th century. We're all Gentiles difficult for us to understand it. But the Jew, uh, you know, that was almost the most sacred thing, the circumcision. And he simply would not, would not eat with an uncircumcised Gentile. He would not have any concourse with an uncircumcised Gentile. And here was Peter, a Christian, eating with Christian Gentiles. They were uncircumcised. When these Jewish brethren came up and Peter got under their gaze, you know, and they looked hard at old Peter, and he wanted to keep his standing down there in the first church at Jerusalem. And they said to him, Peter, you shouldn't be doing that. 
You're a good Jew. You ought not to be eating with those uncircumcised Gentiles. Well, God taught me differently. No, you just, you heard wrong. See, that's not right. You ought not to be listening. We don't, Peter, you're, we're going to lose confidence in you. We won't hold you in as high respect if you keep eating with Gentiles. And you know what happened with Peter? He said to the man at the table, will you please excuse me? See, and he got up and left and wouldn't eat with him. And the Bible says that Barnabas was carried away by Peter's dissimulation. Well, I read that for about 15 years. I didn't know what that word dissimulation meant. I found out one day it meant hypocrisy. Barnabas was carried away by, the, uh, by Peter's hypocrisy. God had taught him by that vision. Cornelius, what was white, all equal in the body of Christ. No difference. And Peter, because of the pressure, the fear of man is a terrible thing. The pressure of these men from Jerusalem, Peter withdrew himself in fellowship. Now, another man came along about that time. Do you remember who it was? Paul. And Paul spotted this thing. And Paul said, they all, you know, it, Peter did it publicly, so Paul answered it publicly. And before all the people in that church, Paul said, Peter, you, I want you to come up here. I'd like to talk with you. Did God uh, take you down the home of Cornelius? Yes. Did he give you a vision? Yes. Did you eat with Cornelius? Yes. Do you have any difficulty? No. Why did you eat? Because God told me to do so. Well, then how come you were, how come you removed yourself from these uncircumcised Christian Gentiles? Peter had no answer. And Paul said in Galatians 2, I withstood him to the face. Are there some cases in local churches where the minister or the elders have to rebuke a man publicly and openly? Yes, there is. Where the sin is open and public and has had influence on the whole church. And Peter and Paul withstood Peter to the face on this matter because it was a critical issue. And the issue is, my friend, are our churches going to have two level Christians in them or are they all going to be equal in the body of Christ? That was the issue. And God established the, the truth that there is no two level Christianity. That God accepts all men God is no respecter of persons. God accepts all men by faith in Christ, and they're all equal in the body of Christ. And years later, I like this. Peter knew Paul was right. He didn't say a thing. He knew Paul was right. And years later, Peter, an old man, <clears throat> an old man, wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3 about our beloved brother, Paul. I like that. Paul rebuked him publicly in front of the whole church. Peter was a big enough man to know that Paul was right. <coughs> Pardon me. And he said, our beloved brother Paul. We learned the lesson. Now, that's the story of, of, uh, of Cornelius. Now, let's, we, we took about half of it last time. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. And Acts, the story really begins in Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 31, Acts 9, 32. And there are two events there, the healing of Aeneas and the raising of Dorcas from death. Peter's involved in both of them. Now, the reason those two events are brought there is that God is authenticating by these two events, by these two miracles, God is authenticating the ministry of Peter. 
By these two miracles, God is sealing Peter's ministry, just as he did with Moses and Elijah. Then we come to the conversion of and acceptance of this Gentile Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Here the door of faith is open to the Gentiles. Now we studied part of this last time. Let's look at it quickly. First, in chapter 10, verses 1 to 8, we have the vision of Cornelius. You remember that. He sees a man coming to him, and God commands him in verse 7 to 8 to send his soldiers from Caesarea down to Joppa to bring Peter up to Caesarea. At the same time, while those soldiers are traveling, in verses 9 to 16, God, secondly, gives a vision to, Corn uh, to Peter. And I've already reviewed that vision. In that vision, God lowers a sheet. In that vision, God lowers a sheet with animals in the sheet, clean and unclean. Now, I want everybody to listen. The problem that Peter had in that vision, the problem that Peter had was the mixture of clean animals and unclean animals. The unclean animals represented Gentiles. The clean animals represented Jews. And Peter was horrified by the mixture of the clean and unclean. And God said, said it three times, Peter, what I have cleansed, don't you call unclean. The mixture in my sight is proper. And when Peter was all through, he saw that what God was after is that he was cleansing unclean Gentiles by the blood of Christ, and now they were clean as well as the Jews, and therefore it was proper for the mixture to put them together, which they were in the body of Christ. Now, Peter got that vision three times, and of course, he, he didn't know what it meant. The interpretation is not given till later on. Peter didn't know what it meant. He was perplexed, and about the time that he got it around noon, there's this knock downstairs, and Peter went downstairs, and while he's walking downstairs, God said to him, Peter, these men are from Cornelius up north. You pack your bags and go with them. So the men said to him, Our master Cornelius has asked you to come. Will you come? And Peter said, I'll come. So they left. Took them a couple of days, and they got up there to the house of Cornelius without any hesitation because God had given them that vision. Without any hesitation, Peter went into the home of Cornelius. He was a centurion. Centurion was a soldier who was uh, um, kind of like a top sergeant over a hundred soldiers. You know, they were divided into different, they divided into legion, if I recall correctly, 6,000 soldiers, and a sentry was a hundred men. It was a basic unit of the Roman army. And Cornelius was a Gentile, probably from Rome, living in Caesarea in Palestine, tired of the polytheism of his ancestors and tired of the obscene immorality associated with Roman religion and highly attracted by Judaism. And because he was highly attracted, as his friend said to Peter, this man Cornelius gives many alms to, to our Jewish friends, people in need. But he'd never been circumcised. Very few Gentiles would be circumcised to be full Jewish proselytes, and Cornelius wasn't. So Peter went into his home, and let's look at Acts chapter 10. When he got inside and saw what was taking place there, Acts chapter 10, verse, verse 28. Here's the interpretation. Acts 10, 28. And Peter went inside the house of Cornelius, verse 25. 
Peter came in, Cornelius met him, fell down in his feet, worshipped him. Peter said, get up. I'm only a man. And he talked with him, went in, found many that were come together, all Cornelius' household, which included his slaves and his soldiers. Verse 28, he said to them, you know how that it is unlawful, unlawful for a man that's a Jew to keep company or come into the house of, an, of a man of another nation, a Gentile. But by that vision, God has showed me that I should not call any man what? Those whom God has cleansed by the blood of Christ are not unclean or common. Therefore, I came unto you without gainsaying it, as soon as I was sent for. I asked, therefore, what intent you have sent for me. <clears throat> Cornelius said, well, four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and vision was given to me. And he tells it, it comes down to verse 33. Immediately, therefore, I sent to you, Peter, and thou hast well done that thou art come here. Now, therefore, here's a, here's a magnificent audience. Wish that every Sunday morning when I preach, when I preach on Sunday morning, that I had this kind of an audience. Look at verse 33. Now, therefore, we are all here present. Our children, our family, everybody's here. Nobody got sick. Nobody had a little fever and said, I've got to stay home today. See, we're all here present. We're all here present before God to hear all the things that are commanded thee of God. Then Peter opened his mouth. Now here's his servant. Well, that's a Semitic way of, of, of emphasizing the soberness of what he's going to say. Peter opened his mouth. Three things in his message. And he never got through. He got cut off about halfway through, which is a real you know, hard thing on a preacher to spend 30 hours preparing a sermon and get only halfway through. It's about like that bell at 7.30. So... Peter opened his mouth and said, First, the new truth. Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of nations. He has no priority. He has no favorites. All men are equally sinners before God, and all men are of equal worth before God. God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that fears him and works righteousness is accepted with him. Now, he doesn't mean that if a man works righteousness, he can be saved by doing good deeds. What he means is that in every nation, whether man's a Jew or Gentile, if he fears God, trusts Jesus Christ as Savior, works righteousness to demonstrate the reality, that man is accepted by God. No difference. Whether he's a Jew or Gentile, God saves him precisely the same way. Then he says, the word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word I say, you know, you've already known it, Cornelius which is published throughout all Judea from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. Now, here's the message. And it follows uh, somewhat the same format as Bible scholars point out that the Gospel of John follows because most men believe that the Gospel of John written by Mark, that behind the Gospel of John stands Peter and the same movement of thought that you find in this brief service and this, may I say this, hope you listen, that when we come to the speeches in the book of Acts, they are what we call praises. And a praises is simply a shortened version. You know, Peter preached longer than this. And when we read some of the sermons of Jesus, we know that he preached longer than this. You can read some of those sermons in six or seven minutes. But he preached much longer. And what the Holy Spirit has done 
is that when the man wrote it down, the Holy Spirit guided him in, in, in reducing that sermon to its essential point. So Peter took longer to preach than this, but the Holy Spirit guided Luke when he wrote it down to condense it and give the essential point. Now look at that sermon. What he does essentially is to talk about the great historic facts of the life of Jesus. Uh, verse, uh, verse 38, first, the life and ministry of Jesus. Verse 38 and 39, the life and ministry of Jesus. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy Spirit, with power, went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things which he did, both in the land of the Jews, which would include Galilee, and in Jerusalem. There's the life and ministry of Jesus. Secondly, the crucifixion of Jesus. And they slew and hanged him on a tree. Or more accurately, the King James sounds like he died before he was hanged on a tree. More accurately, it says, whom they slew by hanging on a tree. There's the death of Jesus. Third, the resurrection of Jesus, 40 and 41. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead, to demonstrate the reality of the resurrection body of Jesus. He ate and drank. Now, Jesus didn't need to eat and drink, but he did to condescend. You were not going to eat and drink in the resurrection, but Jesus did to condescend, to demonstrate the reality of his body. Here's the resurrection of Jesus. And then last of all, his appointment to be the judge of all men. Verse 42, and he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Now that's the sermon. God is no respecter person. See, he has a three-point sermon. <laughs> Three points. First, he states the great truth. God is no respecter person. All men stand equal before God. Second, second, the theme of the gospel, Jesus Christ, his life and ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his final judgment. Third, the invitation. Look at verse 43. Here's the invitation. To him, to Jesus, give all the prophets witness that through his name, through his name, that is through his person and work, through the merit of his death, through his name. Now, what's the next word? And that's the key to it. Jew or Gentile, whosoever, and what's the word after that? Not believes and is circumcised. Whosoever believes in him shall receive remission of sin. What, see, the two points he's going to emphasize here, emphasize several in this invitation. When you look here, the two points he emphasizes, number one, is universality. Whosoever, whoever, Jew or Gentile, whatever it may be, whosoever, the gospel is addressed to all. I happen to believe that Jesus Christ died for all men and that the gospel is addressed to all men. Whosoever believes. And then he lays down the condition. What is that condition to a man receiving Christ as Savior? What is it? believe yeah you know um, you need we all need to be careful when we talk to men about how to become a Christian we have a little crack in the bookstore we used to sell it and it's been used by God uh, innumerable times 
But I always have hesitancy about it. And the reason I have hesitancy about it is it says four steps you need to take to be saved. You see, and that tends to confuse the man. What does the man need to do in order to be saved? He needs to do one thing, and that is to receive the Lord Jesus as Savior. Well, someone says, what about repentance? Doesn't he need to repent? Yes, but that's like the hand. When I offer a hand, there's a front side and a back side. And I can't offer the front side without offering the back side. So when a man trusts Jesus as Christ the Savior, he repents. He repents. What is repent? Metanoel. Nous is the word for mind. Metanoel means to change the mind. Repentance is not a matter of emotion. Repentance is a matter of the mind. I change my mind. How do I change my mind? Well, I change my mind regarding God and his holiness and justice. I change my mind regarding myself. I thought that by going to church and memorizing scripture and getting baptized as I did and going to church Sunday morning and Sunday night that I would be prepared for heaven. One day, I heard the gospel. And when I heard how sinners are saved, you know what I did? I changed my mind. That's repentance. And then I changed my mind about Jesus, and especially repentance is addressed to the Jews, because the Jews believed that Jesus was a blasphemer. They believed he was prompted by the devil. And when Paul got saved, he changed his mind. Him, the greatest enemy of God was Jesus. When he saw the Lord Jesus in that vision, recognized that Jesus Christ is Lord, for thou, Lord, I am Jesus. You know what Paul did? He repented. He changed his mind. And repentance is a change of mind followed by a change of action. I repent. But the great thing I do is not, that's not enough. The great thing I do is to receive and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And when you are talking to a man about his soul, don't confuse the issue. The one great issue, now are you listening? The one great issue is that that man is a lost sinner. He's doomed. He's bound for hell. Jesus Christ has died for him. And God is ready to save him. And the one thing he needs to do is to acknowledge that he's a lost sinner, hopeless and helpless, and to come to Christ and embrace him and receive him as Savior. See? And you are dealing. Some of you need to learn how to deal with a man about his soul. I run across people who are Christians 15 or 20 years. And you ask them, do you know how to deal with a man about his soul? And, you know, they stumble around. They'd have a hard time. They go on the phone and call their preacher. That's something wrong with that. Man being a Christian for, um, you know, not for 10 years, for 10 days, ought to learn how to lead a man to Christ as Savior. Now, you're going to stumble, no doubt. Some people are going to call you a fool. That's the, that's the offense of the cross, no doubt about that. But what every man ought to do is, first of all, is to carry, get a little testament like this, see? Buy a little testament. Buy a little testament. And then put down in the front of it. If you don't know it, put down about four verses of Scripture. Put down Romans 3.23. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. And then put down 
Romans 6.23. What is Romans 6.23? The wages of sin is death. Then put down Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. God commended us, love toward us, that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then put down Acts 16, 31. First, what must we do to be saved? And Paul said, what? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to save us. Then let me suggest something else. Let me suggest something else. And you're talking to man, and you know that's very simple. And, and after you do it a few times, and you're going you know, to fall on your face. But you know, God uses sincerity more than ability. And if a man sees it, we're sincere, and, and do it humbly, do it in the right attitude. As Peter says in 1 Peter 3, with fear and trembling, not fear before man, but fear and trembling before God. I like to take a Bible, a New Testament, and I like to turn around and give it to the man and ask him to read it. You know, he'll kind of stumble around a little, and he'll give him Romans 3, 23, and he'll start reading Romans 4, 3. You'll have to direct him and say, no, that's Romans 3, 23. Read it. Then ask him, what do you think that means? All of sin. Most men don't have any arguments. How many? All. Well, will that include you? Well, I guess so. You think you sinned? Yeah. Well, I guess I have. You told a lie? Yeah. Well, what he's really after when he says sin there, the aorist tense, he's really thinking basically of the sin of Adam, but don't get into that theological discussion. See, all of sin, you told a lie? Yeah, he knows he's a sinner. All right, Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. And explain to him what that means. Physical death, one day you're going to die, but beyond that, eternal death, eternal separation from God. And then third, tell him that God loves you. Jesus loves you. He wants to save you. <clears throat> God is not long-suffering. He doesn't want anybody to perish. Well, how does that fit in with the doctrine of election? God is long-suffering, not willing any perish. I don't worry about how that fits in. See? I believe in them both, but I don't worry about that. And tell you something, I don't get sidetracked in talking to a lost man about the doctrine of election. I believe in it, but I don't get sidetracked. That doesn't belong to him. I talked about 2 Peter 3, 9. God is not willing that any should perish. And Matthew 23, that Jesus stood over the city of Jerusalem and he cried, he wept, he wept for lost souls. And turn to Romans 5, God commends his love toward us. And then tell him Isaiah 56, 3. You know that, don't you? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each one to his own way. Now just quote him that. You can turn to it if you've got an Old Testament, but if you've got one like this, you don't. Just quote to it. Then I'll mention something that I find good in dealing with a man, and we're not going to get through this lesson. We just have to continue it, but this will be profitable. And I thought sometime that what I'd do is take about 10 minutes and let a few men, let every man one by one take a shot at doing this right in front of the class so you learn how to do it, see? My only fear is the day that I announce it, we'll only have about a third of the men present. <laughs> you need to do it. Then learn how and then go out and do it. Go out and do it. But when I come to that last one, a third one, number one, Romans 3, 23, for all of sin, you're a sinner before God. You're lost. Yeah, but I'm not lost as much as that guy next door. He's a reprobate. He's unfaithful. No, I'll tell you something, friend. God starts... Yeah, I use the illustration about jumping the Grand Canyon, see? The greatest 
broad jumper, running broad jumper, can jump, let's say he can, let's say he can jump 49 feet. And at this point, the Grand Canyon is 50 feet. And I can only jump two feet. So this running broad jumper, <laughs> he gets along and he lays out there and jumps 49 feet. He misses it by one foot and drops one mile to the bottom of the canyon. Do you think he's killed? Is he? Well, you know he is, <laughs> unless he's got rubber feet on. My nephews that lived in California, I moved to Dallas. They were young boys, and I used to kid them. And I told them, you know, we got in Dallas, I said, right out of the seminary, uh, we got, I shouldn't have done this, because they just believed me implicitly. I told them they had rubber streets in Dallas, and that I could just jump out the window and wouldn't hurt me, bounce around. And for about two years, they believed that, see. Well, you don't want to get a man like that and stretch his imagination, but jump, you know, he missed it by a foot, and he plunged and fell to the bottom, and he was killed. And I got out and jumped, and I jumped five feet. I missed it by 45. I dropped. I was killed. He missed it by one, but he was dead. I missed it by 45. I'm dead. God's standard is perfection. Jump all the way, see, unless I'm perfect. And I said, you know, God, let's, you take three ones. You, the Sermon on the Mount, the Ten Commandments, or the life of Jesus. Any one of them, take your choice, you'll fall short. See? And if you, I, uh, Dr. Schaefer used to have a little saying when he would talk to men about their souls, he'd ask the question, this is a good one. How good do you think it takes for a man to get to heaven? Well, pretty good. Pretty good. You've got to go to church. You know, and he asked Finally, the guy says, well, really, how good? As good... As good, as good as Jesus Christ. For all of sin to come short of the, and that's Jesus. Now, if you're as good as Jesus, you'll make it to heaven. Well, the average man said, I, I can't do that. Then you're lost. You're doomed. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. You're doomed. Just like I am. Doomed. Lost. Bound for hell. But God loves you. And God's Son, Jesus, came into this world and died for you. See, and then Isaiah 56, 3, Romans 5, 8. All we like sheep have turned astray. We have turned each one to his own way. And the Lord hath. And what I do is I take a man when I'm talking to him. I said, you mind putting out your two hands? He said, all right. So he puts out his two hands. Now here in this, in this group, when they put out two hands, we're taking the collection. See? <laughs> But they were not doing that here. I said, put out your two hands, please. And uh, so he does. And uh, uh, Mr. Mizell, you, you get up here, will you, and let me see it. And uh, uh, I, I asked him to do this. Come on around here. And uh, I say, put out your two hands like this. Now, I say, Mr. Mizell, uh, this is you, Mr. Mizell. This is you, Mr. Mizell. This is the Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ. Let this, this testament, let this represent sin. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned each one to his own way. Mr. Mizell, you've turned astray. You've sinned against God. You agree with that? You agree with that? Yes, you have, see. You know the average man will admit that. There is you, there's your sin. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. That's what happened to the cross. You deserve hell, 
God put your hell on Jesus. You deserve guilt, punishment. God put your punishment on Jesus. He died for you as a sinner, see? Now, where's your punishment? Where's your sin, Mr. Mizell? On whom is it? On Jesus, not on you, see? And the only question now is, will you receive what God has done for you? Acts 16, 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I get him to turn to Acts 16, 31 and read Acts 16, 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And then, our, you know, you ask him any questions. And then, then ask him what? Right. Will you accept the Lord Jesus as your Savior? You do want to do it now, see? Whether it's in a restaurant. You know, well, what if you're out in the street? Well, it wouldn't hurt to get on your knees in the street. Be better to get on your knees and tell the man, be better to get on your knees in the street on earth than have to get on your knees in hell and bow before God. See? Won't hurt that. Lead a man to saving faith in Christ. Then after you do, don't turn him loose. Give him, give Give him the New Testament. Give him the New Testament. He doesn't have to give it to him. And buy another one. And, 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 and use it. And ask God to help him. And maybe he won't, see. Don't make a decision for him. He said, no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. All right? Don't make him. But give him something. Give him a tract so he can go home and, and read it. And work on it. So Peter, Peter said, he closed the sermon by making the invitation. Now, don't, don't rustle. I want to... I mean, let me give me about two more minutes here. Next time we're going to take up, begin at Acts 10:44. Now that's where I said we were going to start in the letter, didn't I? Yeah, I said we're going to start in the letter. Well, now what I meant was next Friday we're going to start there. In the letter. <laughs> well, I got sidetracked. We're going to start in the letter next uh, next time. Now I want you to invite some friends because I'm going to talk about uh, about three things. I'm going to take up Acts. 10:44 to 48 and Acts 11, 1 to 17. And I'm not displeased that we didn't cover it because all that goes together. And I want to talk, now you all listening? I want to talk about three things. One is uh, Cornelius received the Holy Spirit. He was baptized by the Holy Spirit in the hour of conversion and he didn't ask for it. And I want to talk about that because there's some confusion. The second thing, he spoke in tongues. Why did Cornelius speak in tongues? What was the purpose of speaking in tongues? Then the third thing I want to look at is, as soon as Cornelius was saved, and Peter knew he was saved, you know what Peter said, let's do? What? Do what? Let's baptize him. And he baptized him, and he baptized all his household. What is household baptism? Baptize him. And I asked my dear friends, and I have some, <clears throat> I have some dear friends who belong to a denomination that's very strong down the South that believes that in order to be fully saved and right with God, you have to be baptized. This is the greatest passage that opposes that idea. And I say to my friend, I go over this, I said, now here was Cornelius. He spoke in tongues. That meant that since he spoke in tongues, he had already received Holy Spirit. And if he had received the Holy Spirit, that meant that he was already what? Now I said to you, supposing while Cornelius is walking over there to the baptismal, uh, uh, baptismal, supposing about halfway over there, he went <laughs> and had a heart attack and didn't get down that water. Where would he go? 
Well, I asked him that. asked him to answer that. Because we know he was saved, he received the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to talk about those three things. What is it, baptism of the Holy Spirit? When do you get it? Secondly, what is this matter of tongues? And third, what about water baptism of Cornelius? And you notice, they didn't wait. I used to think, we need to wait. New converts, we need to wait three months and examine them carefully. But the more I studied Acts, the more I discovered that as soon as the Philippian jailer was saved, that very night he was baptized. As soon as Cornelius was saved, he was baptized. They took him on profession of faith, and they baptized them immediately. We'll pick that up next time. Father, we thank thee for this time together. Thank thee for this great study. And uh, thank thee for this sermon of Peter. Sermon which he, uh, God taught him a great truth. Thou didst teach him a great truth. A truth that we all need. That whether a man is born in Russia or China or India, whether he's down on Skid Row, whether it's a woman that's a prostitute or out in East Memphis, whatever that person may be, we are all of equal, infinite value in thy sight. And Jesus Christ died for every person. And every person is of infinite worth. And every person has an eternal soul. Oh, God, teach us that. Teach us that. Save us from uh, a kind of... Uh, parochialism in our churches so that our church is just for a certain kind of elite people and for nobody else. Help us to recognize that we're all equal in the body of Christ and that we're all brothers in the body of Christ and that we all have. I may be the preacher here and there may be a man here that's only been saved a week, but both of us have equal access to God and we both stand equal before God and the ground is all level at the cross. Help us to understand that. And help us also, Lord, to do what Peter did, to get involved in inviting men and women and boys and girls to Christ. And we pray for these men. Some of them are involved in soul winning, witnessing. Some of them are not. And we think that some of them are not simply because they don't know how to do it. They may be a little shy. Help us all, Lord. We know that thou hast so constituted it that witnessing is always going to be a difficult. There's always the offense of the cross. It'll never be easy. And yet it's the, our responsibility. Help us to learn how to do it. Give us a good day today. Pray that thou give us opportunities to witness for Christ. And Lord, we pray that if, if it be thy will and thy grace, thou give some men here who've never had that kind of experience and joy, the joy today of witnessing for the Lord and perhaps seeing somebody really trust the Savior. Oh God, we know in the city of Memphis there are men whose hearts are heavy and they're under a load of sin and they're crying out inside and they're waiting for somebody to come and tell them about the gospel. Just as that old alcoholic, that drunken alcoholic, that lawyer, C.I. Schofield, was ready and waiting for somebody to come to him and talk to him. The man did, a lawyer did. Within 15 minutes, C.I. Scofield was on his knees, trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, and gave us the Scofield Reference Bible and made a profound impact upon the whole Christian world. Help us to be sensitive to the needs of people and be ready with our gun loaded to witness for Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.